Heads up, there's a curse word in this episode. It's towards the beginning of the show. Okay, here we go. Let's pop this bottle open. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise, and the other day, producer Felix Poon and I got into our studio closets at a very cool 10 in the morning to start the workday with an invigorating glass of hard cider. Cheers. Cheers. No, that's really dry. I like that. Yeah, mine's really dry, too. This one is kind of has a um, this sort of floral edge to it that doesn't taste exactly like the fruit. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. I mean, I would say mine tastes like a rosé, but yeah, with just a really subtle hint of apple. Both of our um, cider bottles are not like cider cans or like six packs. They're like wine bottles, you know. <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, cider is closer to wine than it is to beer. Yeah, it makes sense. It's fermented from fruit, too, rather than grains like beer. Yeah. Also, the taste of cider has a lot to do with where it's made. Like, cider has terroir, which is this French term that most people associate with wine. Justine, how would you define terroir? Yeah, it's like the the flavor of a place coming through uh, in the product. So the limestone of Burgundy, you know, appearing in wine or something. Placiness. Placiness, yes, the combination of the soil and topography and the climate, all those things that go into the unique flavor of the wine. But it's really the unique flavor that goes into the fruit that makes the wine. So you don't even need to be talking about booze necessarily to understand the idea. Like, I spoke to a cider maker named Soham Bhatt, and Soham says he first really understood terroir with another fruit altogether. Every spring my dad would go to the Indian store and buy a box of mangoes. Um, They were Marathon brand mangoes from Mexico. And he would go there and buy this whole box, like every year, like a broken record, he would complain about the quality of the mangoes. (laughs) And it was like, there's no mango that's better than this Hafus or Alfonso mango from the village that he grew up in called Valsar in in Gujarat, India. And I never really believed him until I went there and I had that mango variety. And like, it literally brought me to tears with how delicious it was. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, totally. So like his, his dad would like really pine after this mango. But for Soham, he was born and raised in the U.S. So the place that he felt most connected to wasn't India. It was New England where he grew up. So, like, he likes mangoes, but what he really felt a deep affinity for were apples. Yeah, very strong New England fall apple association for sure. (laughs) Yeah, and it was about 10 years ago that Soham visited a cidery in western Massachusetts called West County Cider. And that's where he was inspired to start making his own. I went to the cidery last fall, which was part of this annual festival called Cider Days. Welcome to Cider Days. Thank you. And I can definitely tell you, people there don't just like apples, they identify with them. It's just, I think it definitely does have a cultural identity. I don't know if anybody can explain it today, but the apple pie is pretty damn fucking American. Yeah. (laughs) I appreciate a man who curses. Yeah, even people who didn't grow up here had similar thoughts. Here's a German-American woman who told me that Germans love apples, too. But Americans 
take it to another level. But this apple cult is not so much German. Cult. Yeah. <laughs> a cult. Yeah. Don't you think it is kind of a at bit, this yeah. point? Yeah. It's a wonderful tradition. Yeah. It's healthy. I definitely think that the fall <laughs> trope, like person wearing like brown knee suede high boots, knee high boots. boots. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Flannel shirts. Yeah. And one of those sort of suede bucket hats, you know? Yeah. It's such a caricature, but yeah. that's kind of sometimes how cultural identity boils down to this. It's just this all American thing, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, But here's the thing. The apple tree isn't native. Apples aren't from here. Cranberries are native. Blueberries are native, but not apples. This is Soham again. You know, apples are from Kazakhstan. And so in many ways, apples are Asian immigrants. For me, it's an exciting way to think about it. um, That, you know, that I'm more akin to an apple than, than some other people might be. Today on Outside In, the migration story of Malus domestica, the domesticated apple, a foreign fruit that has come to symbolize American heritage. What does that story tell us about migration in American history? But also, what does that story tell us about new immigrants, like Soham's family and their migration from India? So the migration story of Malus domestica, the domesticated apple, some of us might be familiar with. It begins in the apple's ancestral home in the region surrounding Almaty, or Alma-Ata, Kazakhstan, in Central Asia. Alma-Ata actually means father of the apple, and this is a city where wild apple trees sprout up in the cracks of sidewalks, and all around outside the city are forests of wild apple trees up to 50 feet high and as big around as oak trees. Apple paradise. Anyways, people eventually took apples west into Europe along the Silk Road and then here to America with the early colonists. And cider was really common in colonial America. I mean, everybody drank cider, literally everybody. Uh, Even children would, would drink it. And it was seen as a healthful beverage. A common household in, Amer- in colonial America, you know, stored several barrels of apple juice. When it, it was sweet when it was first went in the basement, by, but by the end of the fall into the winter, it converted into alcohol. That was Ben Watson and Charlie Olchowski, two cider experts I talked to at the Cider Festival. So back in colonial days, apples were a matter of survival. It gave the colonists something to eat, but it also gave them something to drink, because most water sources close to settlements were polluted. Beer was the beverage of choice back in Europe, where they had the same problem. But most early attempts at growing barley and hops in America failed, whereas apple trees could be grown almost everywhere. So cider was so common and valued that it became a unit of currency. Barrels of hard cider were used to pay people like doctors, teachers, and construction workers. I just love how deeply boozy American history is. (laughs) And up until the late 1800s, apple trees were mostly grown by seed in America. This is an important point because apples are heterozygous. They don't grow true to seed, which means that if you want to plant a specific kind of apple tree, you have to graft it. And grafting is this technique where you cut a branch from one tree and basically stitch it onto another. But it's a different story if you're planting from seed. The apples you get from the new tree will be completely different from the ones that it came from. 
Now, there's usually around 5 to 10 seeds in every apple. Your average tree has hundreds per harvest, which means a lot of trees were being planted in America. Each one was completely new, and each one was trying to take root and thrive in this new environment. And this is the part of the story where you usually hear about one particular man who is famous enough to have been turned into a Walt Disney folk hero, Johnny Appleseed. Lately, little Johnny here would feel a stir in the air. A rumbling, rolling underbeat of restless men, restless feet. The Disney version of Johnny Appleseed was of this man who single-handedly brought apples out into the frontier, bringing hope and courage to the pioneers as they settled the great unknown beyond the vast wilderness. But it wasn't just Johnny Appleseed and white settlers migrating across the country and planting apple seeds. It was actually indigenous people who first brought the apple west. I spoke to Susan Sleeper Smith, author of the book Indigenous Prosperity and American Conquest. And she says the neutral and eerie tribes in today's upstate New York picked up apple cultivation from Jesuit missionaries, and then they migrated westward. They were forced out by the Iroquois, and they moved um, along the, the shores of Lake Erie. And they arrived in the area around present-day Detroit, which is where it's been documented that these tribes cultivated apples. Not just in their villages, but particularly along the riverways where apple trees grew in abundance. What year was this? This was documented in 1675, more than a century before Johnny Appleseed and a wave of white settlers ever arrived on the scene. A whole century. Yeah, and then there was a French-Canadian military captain who documented indigenous apple cultivation on an island on Lake Erie just outside Detroit. And the island had apples which had fallen to the ground which were almost a foot deep. And they were the most delicious apples he'd ever tasted. That's hilarious. I mean, this is like wine. People would stomp the grapes, right? Did they ferment cider from these apples? That's a good question. Susan says they mostly used the apples for eating and flavoring stews. They did make apple juice, but she says they didn't need to make cider since, unlike white settlers, they knew where the clean water sources were. But apples were also used as a tool for Western expansion. Indigenous people were being forced out by the U.S. government and white settlers. And in some places, land grants in newly forming states required settlers to have apple or pear trees on their property as a condition of their deed. And this is really where Johnny Appleseed comes in, whose real name was John Chapman. And as more and more pioneers come to push back the forest, the kindly deeds of little Johnny Appleseed spread throughout the land. Chapman traveled west ahead of the settlers and grew an untold number of apple trees from seed. Although, according to Susan, Chapman probably also took over abandoned orchards that were cultivated by indigenous people. Typical. So by the time settlers arrived, Chapman's trees were ready to sell to them. Then he'd go back to Pennsylvania, pick up more seeds, and repeat the process. Back and forth, back and forth. And Justine, when you think of Johnny Appleseed, what do you imagine? What's that guy's name? I think about, like, Paul Bunyan. I guess I picture mostly a cartoon. 
Yeah, he's often portrayed as this dirt poor guy who's walking around barefoot wearing a tin pot for a hat. A tin pot? <laughs> yeah, that's so weird. Why is he wearing Why a tin pot? Why is he wearing pot? a pot? That seems like heavy and inefficient. In the Disney movie, it's like song and dance. And so this angel is like, here's your bonnet and, you know, flip it upside down and then you can cook things on it. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's a, the idea is that it's more efficient. Right. It's, it's, it's multi-purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so knowing all this, you might be surprised to hear he actually made a bunch of money off these apple trees. He, at the end of his life, has far more lands that he's holding than any other settler around. 1,200 acres across Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana, which is a lot of land. Anyway, growing apples from seed was the norm because seeds were plentiful and portable. But the thing about growing from seed when it comes to the flavor of the apples is that they're usually really tart. In fact, Henry David Thoreau once wrote that they're, quote, sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge and make a jay scream, unquote. Oh, yes, the classic idiom, <laughs> sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge. Is that a classic idiom? I've never heard it. <laughs> I am being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so almost all of these new apple trees grown across the country were not ideal for eating, but they were perfect for making cider. But things changed with industrialization. Lots of Americans moved off family farms and into the cities in the late 1800s. Orchards were abandoned, and beer became the beverage of choice, especially with the arrival of European immigrants who brought better beer-making techniques over. Then Prohibition happened, and apples became almost exclusively for eating. Cider all but disappeared, and it was basically forgotten. But then, over a half a century later, it started to make its comeback. West County Cider was the first modern cidery to open in 1984 in Massachusetts. And then Woodchuck Cider came along in Vermont. Our first cider was Woodchuck Amber, which we originally bottled in a small two-car garage. Then the Boston Beer Company created the Angry Orchard label in 2012. Like the taste of fresh apples? Try an Angry Orchard Hard Cider. And since then, cider has consistently been one of the fastest-growing segments of the alcohol industry. When you're looking for something a little different, Angry Orchard Hard Cider. Explore the orchard. But what if that long period when cider disappeared in the 20th century was actually a blessing in disguise? What if in order to flourish, the future of cider has to be divorced from its past? A lot of producers nowadays at least recognize that Cider being forgotten was a good thing. That's after a break. Outside In is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on listeners like you to donate to support the show. It's quick and easy. Just go to outsideinradio.org and click donate. And thank you. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise, here with producer Felix Poon. And today Felix is talking about cider and why cider maker Soham Bhatt thinks that cider being forgotten in the 20th century was actually a good thing. But before we get to that, Justine, let's spend some time talking about apple varieties. And I want to play a game first that'll tell me what your favorite varieties are. All right. Which variety do you like better, Macintosh or Honeycrisp? 
Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp or Gala? Uh, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp or Pink Lady? I like Pink Lady a lot. I guess Pink Lady. Pink Lady is the winner here. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I mean, Pink Lady should win. It's a good name. Yeah, totally. <laughs> anyway, all of these common varieties are from grafted trees. And the interesting thing about grafted trees is that all of them can trace their lineage back to a single tree that was once grown from seed. Like, take the Red Delicious, for example. The first Red Delicious tree was discovered on a farm in Iowa in 1872. And this farmer kept whacking this one tree. He was like, I don't want this here. And he just, like, whacks it, comes back, whacks it again. And eventually he's like, all right, I guess I'll keep this. And then, you know, years later, once it fruited, he tried it. He's like, oh, this is really delicious. And <laughs> he, he named it the Hawkeye. But there was this apple nursery that um, was looking for, like, a really amazing apple. And, and uh, they had a name for it already, Delicious. They, they had that name prepared. And they were just looking for the apple to give that name to. <laughs> and so it was through this apple competition that, that this farmer submitted his Hawkeye apple to. And they're like, oh, this is the one. Um, Who will be crowned the Delicious. They crowned it the Delicious. So all varieties at one point had to be discovered by chance like this. And this process is why some have called apples the democratic fruit. Like, you plant apple seeds in the same soil, and any seedling has an equal chance at greatness, like the red delicious and the golden delicious. It doesn't matter your lineage or origin. America will recognize and celebrate great apples. And Michael Pollan writes in his book, The Botany of Desire, quote, what native plant zealot would dare to challenge the right of such trees to call themselves American now? I mean, as iconic as it is, I kind of also feel that the Red Delicious is the most maligned apple as well. <laughs> like, for good reason, totally, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, they're not very good. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. They're pretty bland and mealy. But that's because of how we've selectively bred them over time. Because even with grafting, growers are still cutting from branches that look the most red and have the toughest skin so that they're easier mm. to transport. We've essentially evolved them for the mass market. But this is very much an American story, though, right? Do you mean like the homogenization of, you know, so many different apple varieties down to just a handful that are good for the grocery store. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of like endemic to, you know, American agriculture, right? Or like culture, like wipe out your difference, like fit in. Mm, yeah. Have you ever been to the Common Ground Fair in Maine? I have not. It's like huge and it's in the fall and it's been going for decades. One time when I went, I... um went to this stand of like heirloom apples that were sort of very localized in Maine mm -hmm. and they had these missing posters um kind of like wanted posters mm. for like a missing cat or something yeah but instead of the cat it was missing all of these varieties of apples right. like last seen in this county in 1920 um because a lot of those varieties those heirlooms have gone out of existence Honestly, I feel like finding lost apples is something I could totally see myself getting into. <laughs> oh, I love that for you. Second career. <laughs> <laughs> but apples aren't the only heterozygous species in our story. The other species are humans. We are not like our parents or grandparents. 
And just as generational change happens with apples, especially through the process of migration and changing environments, we can see something like that with humans too, and how culture shifts and changes. Take cider maker Soham Bhatt, who we heard from in the first half of the episode. His story is a great example of this. So Soham's parents immigrated to the U.S. from India, and his whole family loves food. They love eating it, they love making it. And growing up, Soham's parents got really good at making one dish in particular. There's a kind of famous street food in India called Bani Puri. Bani Puri is this spherical fried bread about the size of an eggshell. And you fill it with stuff like potatoes, lentil, some different chutneys. Mm. It's one of these things that if you grew up eating it, it's like, it's a very, very important kind of nostalgic um, taste memory for, for them, a, a, a comforting one. And his parents and relatives put a lot into this, putting together essentially this assembly line for making hundreds of these. You needed somebody to, to make the main dough. Then you needed somebody to make tiny little balls out of it. Um, then you needed somebody to roll the little balls into discs, you know, the size of a silver dollar. Uh, and then you needed somebody to fry them. Soham was only about five or six at this point. My rule was getting all the, all the puris that didn't puff, the flat ones, the ones that were like little crackers, those were, those were our snacks. Soham says he's always been a tinkerer in the kitchen, like kneading his own bread, fermenting his own yogurt. It's a relationship to cooking he picked up from his parents. And he also learned to value seasonality from them. You know, for them, the mango season or the guava season are short two, three-week windows. Growing up in America, Soham identifies more with the fruits that you find here. For me, it's like, oh, like tomato season's here, and I'm going to really appreciate tomato season while it's here. And apple season's here, and I'm going to appreciate the apple harvest. Soham has a foot in both cultural worlds, and what you eat and drink is a big part of that for him. Having a foot here means connecting to something that's literally from the soil we walk upon, apples. Having a foot there in India means eating something that Soham had with his parents as a kid, like, say, a spicy dish of goat neck birani. All these foods that we eat, you know, like Nigerian, like jollof rice, spicy dumplings and gyoza and Thai food, we look up, you know, recipes for, for something Filipino or whatever it might be. Yeah. There's a place for the, that kind of food with cider that's very natural. Um, and the best thing about it is that it's local. So you, get, you can kind of connect both to this global perspective and also with where you are. Soham makes these kinds of food pairings in his tap rooms. He partners with ethnic food pop-ups to make sure the food reflects the heritage of a diverse clientele. Soham says that cider can reflect this future forward identity rather than a nostalgia for a colonial or old frontier identity. Food pairings and alcohol make a lot of sense to me. Like that's how a lot of alcohol is treated, right? Like wine and, and cheese or a heavier wine with um, like a meat or a stew or something. So the sweetness of the cider plus spiciness, just, it makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know, you, just, you taste new things in the cider as well when you pair it with food. Yeah. I think what Soham is doing is he's doing his own branding campaign for cider. He's trying to avoid this cultural baggage that he says beer has. Man up and choose a light beer with more taste. Grab a triple hops brewed Miller Lite with that great Pilsner taste. 
Budweiser presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you. Beer is marketed for the blue-collar, all-American man who likes pickup trucks, hot babes, and Sunday night football. Well, it also like, could very just as easily be associated with, like, Belgian monks, you know, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> like, asceticism. <laughs> yeah. And then there's wine that has this cultural elitism to it. But Soham says cider doesn't have any of that. He points to market research that shows cider consumers are evenly split between men and women unlike beer, which skews male, and wine that skews female. And among cider makers themselves, there are a lot of women in leadership roles as cider makers, agricultural researchers, and on the American Cider Association board. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy wine myself, but I also get really annoyed by the, like, rosé all day, like, <laughs> like <laughs> mom needs her wine stuff. It's like, even if you're like, I like rosé and I'm a woman, it's like... I, I don't want that to be the commentary, <laughs> just like yeah. a man should be able to enjoy a beer without participating in masculinity culture, you know? Right. Totally. I love rosé. I could drink rosé all day. There you go. <laughs> you can own that <laughs> phrase if you like. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. And this is what Soam meant when he said he's glad cider was forgotten in the 20th century. It didn't get shaped by all these terrible ad campaigns and you know, Mm. social media. You just got to skip it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there's this opportunity to associate it with diverse backgrounds. So as far as the landscape of cider and the industry, is there a lot of diversity in terms of flavor as well? Yeah, Soham's, you know, pretty focused on that. Like, he's not interested in making cider that tastes just like what they drank back in the day. Mm. For him, it's about using modern winemaking techniques, like chemical stabilizers and temperature control. Mm. It's about experimenting with the thousands of different apple varieties out there, or infusing your cider with blueberries or cranberries. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of experimentation, just like the craft beer movement too, right? Like, there's way more options out there now than just you know, a classic lager or a New England IPA. Yeah, exactly. It's really about making all sorts of new things to make sure that there's something for everyone. But I think on the flip side, the fact that cider was forgotten kind of makes the nostalgia of cider even more potent. Like, as cider has been getting rediscovered in the past couple of decades, a common kind of branding strategy was to bring up how the founding fathers all drank cider, how George Washington and Thomas Jefferson fermented their own, and how John Adams drank cider with breakfast every day. Yeah, and even some of the artwork is sort of on, you know, labels, sort of calls back to that. It's very Yeah, it feels very colonial, Vintage, right? yeah. Yeah. And then nostalgia, like, you you imagine, like, oh, was Thomas Jefferson making and pressing his own cider? And uh, no, <laughs> he was not. And this is a conversation that's been happening in the cider community, that this romanticization of colonial times often leaves out black cider makers from the story, like Jefferson's enslaved cider makers, Jupiter Evans, George and Ursula Granger. And by filling in these gaps in cider history, The industry is saying that Black people and Indigenous people are a part of this story, too, part of this ancestral and cultural heritage. But for Soham, he doesn't see himself in this country's heritage. I mean, 
there are people here in the Northeast that can probably link their their family history to the colonial period. And by all means, like that actually is their heritage, you know, but it's weird for me to, to use the word heritage um, because it's it isn't, you know, it just simply isn't my heritage. At the end of the day, Soam doesn't think enjoying cider should even be about heritage. Why did it go away? You know, like we can we can point fingers at beer or whatever it might be um, or prohibition. But like it's not part of the cultural consciousness in the way that beer is. It was truly forgotten for some reason, maybe because it wasn't that good, you know. And now we're living in a modern era where we have access to knowledge, technology, uh, varieties that allow us to like invent new ways of making cider that people actually like and they're really excited about. And so I'm, I'm more about embracing that kind of forward-looking perspective than I am about the, the kind of backward-looking perspective. Felix, thank you for this really interesting reporting on cider. My pleasure. And actually, before we go, Felix, you actually made your own during your reporting for this story, right? Yeah, it's not that hard. What I did was I actually picked a bunch of crab apples from a nearby park. I washed them with my roommate. He snuck in a bite. I juiced them with my juicer. And then I poured that juice into a glass jug and put an airlock on it, which is this kind of zigzaggy tubular thing that lets air escape, but it doesn't let any air to get in. And how did it go? What did it taste like? Well, we're about to find out. Are you serious? Yeah. Can, can you see this? <laughs> yeah, it looks like the sediment has settled to the bottom. It's pretty, like, amber and clear, though. Take a swig. Hmm. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so for the full review, visit our website, outsideinradio.org. <laughs> yep. All right. Roll the credits. <laughs> No, it's um, it's it's a little sour. There's there's some acidity here. Would you bring this and serve it to a friend? I have to say, there's also some kind of funky taste in here. <laughs> <laughs> so probably not. <laughs> I think it's a valiant first mm, cider. Mm. Thank you, thank you, Justine. So I'm gonna recommend to you, our listeners, to get in on the fun and maybe give this a try yourself. If there aren't apple trees around you, you can get unpasteurized sweet cider from the store and throw some yeast in that to ferment. We will put a link to a cider-making guide in the show notes. And if you want to learn more about the story of cider, I recommend checking out a couple articles. One is about uh, the black cider makers George and Ursula Granger. And there's another article by cider maker Melissa Maddens. Melissa only uses forged apples in her cider. She does that as a way to reflect on her relationship to the land that she lives on, which indigenous people were pushed out of. All that and more you can find in the show notes. This episode was produced, reported, and mixed by Felix Poon. It was edited by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, and our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. Special thanks to Darlene Hayes. She's the editor of Malice Magazine and author of George and Ursula Granger, The Erasure of Enslaved Black Cider Makers. Thanks also to Matthew Festa, and thanks to all the cider makers I talked to at Cider Days. Ben Clark, Ben Watson, Charlie Olchowski, Judith Maloney, William Groda, Chris Gazax, and Carol Hillman. 
Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music by Jari, Kevin McLeod, and Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is supported by listeners like you. There's a link to donate in the show notes. You can also go to outsideinradio.org and click donate.